0: We're in Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 through chapter 16, verse 12. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, by God's grace, we're going to hopefully get through this section of Scripture tonight. When we left off last Tuesday, we saw that Jesus had been teaching and healing a large crowd of people. That's the verses 29 through 31 that we ended up with last week. Now, they've been with Jesus for three days now, and he wants to feed them before they head home. Now, notice first, though, that Jesus knows if you've eaten or not, and he cares about that stuff. Look at verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Let me say that to you again right now. As we're going through this pandemic, people are losing their jobs. Some of you are getting furloughed. Some people have been laid off. Uh, we're going through a tough time financially in many ways. Notice that Jesus knows if you've eaten and he cares. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Let me remind you of a couple of things or remind you of something that you might know and point out a couple of things you might not know. In Matthew chapter 6, look at verses 25 through 33. Jesus said in Matthew 6:25, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. All right. Now, listen closely. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. Let me point out to you what Jesus says here in Matthew 10, verse 29. And he says, don't fear those who kill the body. Sorry, let me jump down to verse 29. I was reading in verse 28. 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. So here Jesus says, sparrows are so little and they're worth nothing in man's eyes. Yet God keeps track of whether or not one even dies. And you're worth more than many sparrows. And then he adds this little tidbit. He says, Even the hairs of your head are numbered. I care about every little thing. For years, people have said to me, they said, Jim, does God care about the little stuff? And my answer has always been the same. Name something big to God. It's all little stuff to him. And he cares about every little detail. Go real quick to Psalm 56. Let me encourage you with something here. Some of you might have gone through a hard time and you might even shed a few tears. Listen to Psalm 56, verse 8. In Psalm 56, verse 8, the scripture says, You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God's kept track of your tears. So Jesus, in this instance right here, in Matthew chapter 15, realizes that they've been with him for three days and they haven't had anything to eat. And he doesn't want them faint on the way But also Mark's account. Go to Mark chapter 8. Mark's account shows us that he also knew how far each of them had traveled. Go to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read this section of scripture that we've been studying or we are studying tonight from Matthew. I'm going to read to you Mark's account in verses 1 through 21, because Mark always brings out some things and adds to it. I love the fact that when you compare all the gospel stories together, you get the fuller picture. In Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1, "...in those days when a great, again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat." And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Look at what Mark adds. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven For the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So I want you, as we move on in their study tonight of this situation where Jesus feeds the 4,000 with the seven loaves and a few fish, to first off, let this sink in. He knows whether you've eaten. He knows what's in your cupboard. He's keeping track of the hairs of your head. He knows the number of tears you've cried. Folks, Don't fall into that mindset of thinking that God doesn't know and you have to take care of yourself. Go to him. He cares. Now, as Jesus suggests that they feed this crowd before they leave. In this instance, remember before in the feeding of the 5000, the disciples said, come, send them away so they can go get something to eat. And of course, Jesus says, you feed them. In this instance, Jesus initiates it and says, they've been with me now three days and I don't want them to go away hungry. Let's feed these guys before they go. So as Jesus suggested they feed this crowd before they leave, the exact same disciples that had watched Jesus feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish and then picked up 12 basketfuls left over, now say again, almost what they said before, how can we find enough food in such a desolate place to feed all these people? Now before we go get too hard on these guys, I want you to take a second and think back over your life and how many times God has done a miracle to get you out of a financial bind, or hardship, or other sticky similar situation, and you panicked, and you wondered if you would make it, and that he provided, and when another situation very similar to that happened, if you're like me, you probably panicked again, and said, how are we going to make it this time? Folks, as I've looked back over my life, I've been walking with the Lord now since 1973. I'm 55 years old. The Lord has never dropped me. And I look back and I could tell you story upon story upon story as a child how God took took care of our family as my dad was a pastor of a little church and working three jobs up in New Hampshire. And as uh, my wife and I lived on less than $6,000 in our first year of of marriage and how God took care of us and provided for us, even in those times when it looked like we weren't going to have any money for food or gas and he did miracle upon miracle. I wish I could tell you that after watching him do it before, Every time the next situation arose when things got tight or things got nervous that our answer was, well, God did it like he did with the 5000. He'll do it again this time. I wish I could tell you that that's how I've been. It isn't. Before we beat up on these guys and say, what's their problem? You've got to let the spirit speak to you and show you you're just like them. I'm just like them. And I don't know about you, but this has probably caused a few of you to have a little worry. Do a little math in your head. How are we going to pay our bills? How are we going to do this? The money's going to run out. The savings is going to run out by a certain time. You've probably done all the math like the disciples. And it doesn't add up. And Jesus wants to reteach you something today. I want you to be reminded that Jesus is orchestrating these situations as he follows his father's leading. And he's orchestrating these situations in order to humble his disciples, to test his disciples and to teach his disciples. Go with me back to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Deuteronomy chapter eight. I want you to look with me at verses one through five. As you're going to see, this is a pattern that God has been using over and over again, all through his dealing with his disciples and with his children, with the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as the nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land, they've been going through the 40 years in the wilderness. Listen to what God says through Moses to them in verses 1 through 5 in Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has, look closely at this next word, led you These 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Look at what he says in verse four. Your clothing didn't wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Do you think that Jesus knew that his disciples hadn't learned the lesson yet when he sent them out two by two and they didn't learn it? Of course, he knew they didn't learn it. Do you think he knew that they didn't learn the lesson when he had them go feed the 5,000? He told them to go out with the five loaves and two fish and feed over that many people. Do you think that he knew that they didn't learn it? Of course, the scripture even showed us in Mark chapter 8, verse 52, that they still didn't understand about the loaves when he walked on the water. He also knew they still hadn't gotten it yet. And he's put them in another situation. He's allowed it to be three days that he's taught these people and no one's eaten. And he's the one who initiates this and says, let's feed these people before you go before they go he's got a plan in mind and he's going to do something awesome yet he uses it as an opportunity to remind the disciples of their dependence on him that's the humbling he's using it as an opportunity to show them where their hearts really are that's the test he already knows how they're going to do on the test the test isn't for him the test is for them and he's also Teaching them that man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Folks, let me just say this to you. As we go through this study tonight, be reminded and encouraged with the fact that when God orchestrates a situation, he's got many things that he has in mind. He's doing many things on multiple levels. This pandemic is being used by God across the globe to accomplish a lot. He's using it to demonstrate to his children that he'll provide and he cares for them. He's using it as a judgment on some people in other nations and maybe ours as well. He's using it to teach and to show many, many things and accomplish many purposes. Don't ever think for a second that you can say, I know what God's doing. We show our ignorance when we do that. God's doing more than one thing. You might see a glimmer of a portion of what God's doing through something. But the question is not what's God doing on the global scale. What's God accomplishing? What is his purpose The question is, what is he teaching you? He's allowing us to go through this for a season. What's he trying to accomplish? Now, neither Matthew's or Mark's Gospels tell us where they got the seven loaves or how many fish. We saw in John's Gospels account of the feeding the five thousand that there was a little boy who had the five loaves and the two fish. Only Matthew and Mark tell the story of the feeding of the 4,000 and neither Matthew nor Mark tell us where they got the seven loaves or how many fish there were. We just know there are seven loaves and only a few fish. But once everyone was seated by Jesus this time himself, we saw in Mark uh, the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus had the disciples tell the people to go sit down. Now we see from Mark and Matthew's account, Jesus instructs the crowd to sit down. They are Fed and they all ate. And after feeding the 4,000 people, there were seven basketfuls left over. Now, I want to deal with that real quickly. There are less people to feed this time and more food to start with. There's 4,000 men, not counting women and children. There's 4,000 people to be fed and they have more food to start with. Seven loaves versus five and a few fish, which is more than two. Yet in the feeding of the 5,000, there were more people to feed, less food to start with, and 12 basketfuls left over. Here we have less people to feed, more to start with, and what's left over is smaller than the 12 basketfuls. Now there's only seven. I say this for a reason. Don't think for a second that you can figure out the recipe. You see, even though God rarely duplicates a method, and if you've ever read my book, Principles of a God-Centered Church, you know principle number one is that God may not duplicate a method. And I I walk people through how nowhere in Scripture does God ever do the same thing the same way twice. God doesn't change. His truth will never change. His, His principles will never change. But He keeps changing His method so that we'll walk with Him, that we'd understand that man... Doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. He's teaching us to walk with him. And his instructions for crossing the Red Sea were different than the instructions for crossing the Jordan. They successfully defeated the walls of Jericho, never walked around another city. He never healed a blind person the same way twice. Strike the rock, next time speak to the rock. I could go on and on and show you how God doesn't duplicate a method, but sometimes he will do things that are similar. And even though they're similar, they're not quite the same. He still doesn't do them exactly the same. Let me just say this to you. If there were 12 basketfuls left over again this time, like there were the first time, we would think that there was some, that was something to copy and try to have that much left over after every church potluck or else we'd done it wrong. Don't think you know the recipe. Let God do what he wants to do. He has a reason why there were 12 left over in the first time and seven in this one. Now, after this episode of the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples and he heads across the Sea of Galilee over to the western coast to the area of Magadan on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. Now, upon arriving there, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to test Jesus. They want him to produce a miraculous sign from heaven. Go with me real quickly to Matthew 16. Look at verses 1 through 4. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. All right. Mark 8, you can look at it later on. Mark 8, 11 through 13 shows the same thing. They come to test him. Let me say that again. They come to test him and they want him to show a miraculous, powerful sign to prove he's the Messiah. By the way, does that sound familiar to anybody else? Go with me back to Matthew chapter 4. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? In Matthew chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set, up up, set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He'll command his angels and concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Let me just remind you that here we see that Satan came to test him and his question was, prove you're the son of God. Do something powerful, miraculous. Turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself off the temple. People will believe. Show yourself to be who you say you are. And all that's happening here is the same thing that happened in the wilderness. Go to Luke's account in Luke 4. Luke adds something in his account of Jesus being tempted and tested in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, look at verses 12 and 13. In Luke 4, verse 12 And Jesus answered him and said, it is, said to him, it is said, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, look closely, until an opportune time. He wasn't done testing him, tempting him. He's going to come back at him later on, and he's been doing it all throughout. But here's another one of those times. Jesus gets in the boat with His disciples. He's teaching His disciples. They're still learning that lesson about His power, His provision, and not doing things in their own hands, but using the power of God as we obey what God says to do in each situation, and letting God get the glory. As He's teaching His disciples, He gets them in a boat. He gets to the other side. When He's there, the Pharisees come, and they're actually being used of Satan to throw the same kind of a temptation and same kind of a test at Him. Are you going to take it into your own hands? Are you going to show your power? If you really are who you say you are, give us a miraculous sign from heaven. It's the identical thing that Satan was trying to do in the wilderness. Oh, listen closely. Jesus, too, had to choose to follow his father's plan and not take matters into his own hands. Folks, that's something we're all wrestling with right now. I'm just going to say something to you that I hope you hear. The government is offering money right now, and some of you, God's going to tell you it's okay to do it. Others, He's going to tell you, I want you to not do it, and I want you to trust me. We would be wrong. To decide that everybody's supposed to do the same thing and everybody's supposed to do it or not supposed to do it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we're to be led of the spirit individually. If it doesn't go against the word of God, we're to be led and each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In Romans 14, the Bible says some people are going to see things a certain way in the scriptures. Others are going to see it another way. And folks, if someone feels like God told them not to take the help from the government, you don't judge them because they're obeying what they believe God's told them to do. But if you feel like God's told you not to take the money from the government in this situation, and someone feels like God has said it's OK, you better not judge them either, because they're following what they believe the Lord is saying. And that's my big thing to you. As, you, as I, If I were to be your pastor in this situation and you were to say, Jim, Pastor Jim, what do I do? What should I do? My question would be, what is God telling you? My answer would be, you do what God's telling you to do in this instance. And for some, he may say yes, and for others, he may say no. And each of us need to be making sure we're doing what he tells us to do. And Christians have got to stop telling each other how they ought to live their lives. God wants to be the Lord of everyone's life, not you and not me. We're as preachers and teachers to point people to the Word of God, to teach them how to walk with Him and how to be led of the Spirit. In some instances, Paul, instead of taking the beating, he he hid in a basket and snuck out of the city. Yet in other instances, the Spirit of God had him take the beating. Other instances, he pulled out his Roman citizen card and said, you're allowed to beat me. There's no formula to this, folks. I hope you're listening to this lesson. There's no recipe that we're trying to follow to follow God. We're supposed to walk with Him and not take things into our own hands, but in every situation say, Father, what would you have me do? Lord Jesus, what is your, in, your response that you're looking for from me? He said, first of all, I'm, I'm humbling you in this situation. I'm showing you where you really are, your dependence on me. I'm showing you where your heart is, whether or not you're really going to listen to me or just fix it yourself. And I'm also trying to teach you how to hear from me, how to walk with me and listen to me. And so, folks... It's time that Christians stop judging each other during this time of how they're responding to the pandemic. You walk with the Lord. You love your brother and you love your sister. And you pray that they're following God and what God wants them to do. The Bible says that they'll know that we're his followers by our love one for another. Let's not use this pandemic time as a time for Christians to attack each other on how they're responding to the pandemic. I could go on, but we get away from our study of Matthew. So I'm going to stop preaching on that for right now. Let me say this again. Jesus, too, had to choose to follow his father's plan and not take matters into his own hands. Go to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, listen to what the scripture says here in verses 5 through 11. In Philippians 2 verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. claim equality with God something to be grasped but he humbled himself and he took the role of a servant in John chapter 5 verse 19 just you can look at it later on John 5 19 Jesus said the son can do nothing by himself he only does what the father tells him to do in John chapter 14 look at verses 10 and 11 in John chapter 14 verses 10 and 11 look at again what Jesus says John chapter 14, verse 10, he says, Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, I brought you to that passage for a reason. These works... That Jesus is saying, I want you to believe on account of the works themselves were his fulfilling of the prophecies of scripture. Again, everything Jesus did, he only did if the father told him to. Did he have the power to do everything he wanted to? Sure. That's why Satan came and tempted him with that wouldn't be a temptation if he wasn't able to do it, but he was able to turn the stones into bread. He was able to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and not die. He was able to prove in his own power in his own way that he was the Messiah, but he chose to humble himself and follow the Father's leading. By the way, Y'all caught on yet? Isn't this what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples? You go out and do what I've asked you to do in my power, in my strength. And don't think it's you. You just do what I tell you to do. They're not learning it yet, but he knows they're going to get there. They're going to get there. He's teaching it to them. He's teaching it to us. God has planned that those who respond in faith to Jesus will do so in response of believing what God has said. That's how he's designed this faith thing. Go with me to Romans chapter 10. Let me show you what I mean. Let me say that to you again. God has designed that those who respond in faith to Jesus will do so in the response of believing what God has said. We don't get to determine what God has to do, so we'll believe. How many of us have heard people say over the years, Oh Lord, if you'll just do this, I'll believe. You're asking for a miraculous sign. You're wanting him to prove himself more than he already has. The Bible calls the people that do that, An adulterous generation. In Romans chapter 10, listen to verses 8 through 17. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says... Did you catch that? For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says here, well, how... Can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel that they've heard. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Folks, listen to me. We, too, want God to do something. Some of you might even have said, God, if you will just get me out of this or God, if you'll just do such and so, then I'll believe you're the one putting him to the test. He has to dance for you so that you'll believe. The Bible says that Jesus' response to those people is I've already given you enough signs through the works, through the obedience of the father, through doing what the scripture has said. If you won't believe what the scripture says, even if I do this, quote unquote, miracle and dance for you, you still won't believe. You want proof? Go to Luke 16. Go to Luke 16, verses 27 through 31. In Luke 16, verse 27, we're in the middle of a story of Lazarus and the rich man. And in verse 27, the rich man is in Hades and he says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so they may war- he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, no, Father. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Folks, the Pharisees came to test him. It was coming from Satan. It was the same thing that Satan had said to Jesus in the wilderness. Hey, do a miraculous sign to prove that who you are, are. and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to dance for you. And then he says a couple of interesting things to them. He knows where this test is coming from, and he says two things to them in our passage here in Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. He says, number one, he says, you already read or interpret the signs when you check the color of the sky. Why can't you interpret the signs of these times that are being fulfilled in your midst? Signs that were prophesied about in the scriptures. In other words, you guys are religious leaders. You've spent your life in the scriptures. You've been studying about the coming Messiah. You've been looking for the Messiah. You know what the scripture said the signs would be that proves who he is. You're able to recognize if it's red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. You're able to interpret the sky. Why can't you recognize the signs that are being fulfilled in your presence right now from the scriptures? Let me just give you a few of them real quick. Go to Isaiah 61. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 says this. Says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist was questioning whether Jesus was the one, whether he was the promised Messiah, all Jesus did was send him the scriptures. You go back and tell John what's going on, and he quotes from this passage. Go to Isaiah 42, look at verse one through nine, Isaiah forty-two, verses one through nine, another prophecy about the coming Messiah. Behold, my servant, Isaiah forty-two, verses one through nine. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him; he will bring forth justice to the nations. By the way, do you remember when Jesus' baptism, the Father spoke, the heaven, the 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 heavens opened, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. The Father said, "This is my Son, with whom I'm well pleased." Listen. Behold, my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He won't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it hurt in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give So here we see that the prophecies talked about the Messiah He's going to open the eyes of the blind, which Jesus was doing. How the spirit of God was to descend on him. The father was going to say, this is my beloved one in whom my soul delights. Back up in Isaiah to chapter 9. Look at verses 1 and 2. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now, a couple of things I want you to catch from this passage. Remember back in the beginning of our study of Matthew, because of the Jews rejecting him and trying to kill him in Jerusalem, he spent most of his time around the Sea of Galilee in the fulfillment of this prophecy. But where are the Pharisees and Sadducees right now chasing him and testing him? They're in Galilee. The same area that the scripture said that he would spend most of his time doing his ministry. Jesus is saying, you guys have been studying the scriptures your whole life, looking for the Messiah. The scriptures gave you signs. They look for they even told you Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that it'd be born in Bethlehem. Do a little research. You'll find out I was born in Bethlehem. In, in just a few days from now, you're going to see many more signs fulfilled. Let the scriptures speak to you about who Jesus is. Some of you out there listening right now may be wrestling with your, your for yourself whether or not Jesus really is the promised one, whether he is the Savior of the world, whether he's the only way you can be made right with God. Read the scriptures, examine the scriptures to see whether or not they be true. And it's through the word of God that you come to faith. Don't you say, God, if you do this, then I'll believe. If you do that, then I'll believe. Show yourself to me, God. He's already revealed himself through the scriptures and coming on this earth and fulfilling them to the nth detail. He says to the Pharisees, you guys want a miraculous sign? First off, you've been given plenty. Second thing he says to them is this. And by the way, this is a second time he says this, and I'll show you this from the scriptures. Here in Matthew 16, for a second time, he tells them that they want a miraculous sign that he's the quote unquote promised Messiah. Then they will have to wait until he dies and rises from the grave in three days. By the way, he is the promised Messiah, but they were questioning it. That's why I put the quotes there. He is the promised Messiah. They were questioning it. He says to them, you want sign? You want proof? You want a miraculous sign that I'm the one? You're going to have to wait until I die and rise from the grave three days later. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're in Matthew 16, where he's just said to them in verse four, an evil adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Look at verses 38 through 42. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And something, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus has already said to them, you want a miraculous sign? You'll get one, but you're going to wait until I die. Because after I die, three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man's going to be in the heart of the earth, but then I'm going to come back from the dead. By the way, he won't just say this to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's going to keep saying this to his disciples because they still don't fully understand who he is yet. Go to Mark chapter 8. Let me show you what I mean. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And I appreciate Allison typing these scriptures for those of you that are online and she's, Writing them down for you. I appreciate that. I really do. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Look at what it says. And he, Jesus, began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jump over to Mark chapter 9. Look at verses 30 and 31. Mark 9, verses 30 and 31. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Go to Mark chapter 10. He's teaching his disciples in each of these situations. Mark chapter 10. Look at verses 32 through 34. Mark 10, verse 32 And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. By the way, those of you who know the scriptures, when Jesus went to the tomb, did they all say, hey, don't worry. Three days later, he'll be he'll be alive again. No. They still hadn't gotten it yet either. But. As you look at the scriptures, after he rose from the dead, the spirit of God opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. And then they understood the scriptures that he had to rise from the dead. Let me say this to you, folks. You want proof of who Jesus is? You go check and see if he rose from the dead. You want this miraculous sign from God? He's already given you one. You go and do the research many people have and they've come to faith you go do the research, you'll find that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the most provable events in all of history. By the way, go with me to John chapter 2. He had already told the nation of Israel this way back at the beginning of his ministry. John chapter 2, look at verses 18 through 22. In John chapter 2, verse 18... So the Jews said to him, "What sign do you show us for doing these things?" He's just cleaned the temple out at the beginning of his ministry. What sign do you do do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." The Jews then said, "It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days." But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. And the word that Jesus had spoken. Did you catch that? They believed when? When they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign, show us a miraculous sign. And he says, you already know how to recognize signs and you've been given plenty. uh, And you're not going to get one until after I've risen from the dead. Now, I want to point out one more thing. Go back to Matthew chapter 16. One more thing from his episode with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says in verse 4, he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Folks, listen closely. Notice how, after being tested by the Pharisees and Sadducees, and Jesus is giving them nothing more than what he had already been saying and doing, Jesus and his disciples simply get back into the boat and leave. They had just gotten in the boat, gone over to the west coast, over the area of Magadan. And when he get, they get there, the Pharisees come, they test him, and the Bible says he just gets back in the boat and moves on. You know the Bible actually says that's how we're to handle it when Satan attacks us. When Satan comes at us, we're not just trying to stand there and fight him. We're to submit ourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. The Bible says in James 4, 7, we just put our faith in the Lord, we listen to what he says, and we walk away. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, write it down, look at it later on. 2 Timothy 2 verses 22 through 26, the scripture says, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must gently instruct. And we're, and we're to actually flee youthful lusts. We're not to get in fights with people about stuff. We're to share the scripture and gently leave it and let the spirit do his work. It's not our job to fight Satan. So too many Christians are out there thinking they're going to go storm the gates of hell. No, no, no. You walk with Jesus. He'll take care of Satan. Satan walks away because of Jesus, not because of you and me. Actually, we see in the book of Jude, verses 8, 9 and 10, that even the archangel Michael, when he disputed with Satan over the body of Moses, didn't dare bring accusation against him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been given an example of what to do. When Satan comes at us in the midst of a test, in 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verses 21 through 23. Talking about our suffering, he says, "...for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth." When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you remember the prophecy we read earlier? How a bruised reed he won't break, he won't raise his voice in the streets. He fulfilled that because he could have gotten in an argument with these guys and he could have won. He wrote the book. He wrote the Bible. He is the word. He could have won. But remember, he was submitting himself to the father and he just moved on. He's given us an example, folks. Too many of us Christians have gotten proud because we know a few scriptures and we think we know how God works. And we start telling everybody else how they ought to live their lives. God says to us today, I want you to follow me. Teach the word, encourage people to follow me and to be led of the spirit and let me show them how it specifically plays out in each of their lives. You don't become their Lord. Romans chapter 14, verse four is one of my favorites. He says, who are you to judge the servant of another to his own master? He stands or falls. Listen, and the Lord is able to make him stand. You know what? If I just share with you what the scripture says and then trust that the God that's working in me, that's in you, is going to be able to get me and you where he wants us to be, I don't make it my job to get everybody else around me living their lives. Have you noticed, by the way, that's in the world. Everybody on social media tells everybody else whether or not they're supposed to be wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or whether or not they're supposed to do this or that. How someone will wear a certain outfit and everybody comments on whether they like the outfit or not. And It's, it's just crazy right now. And it's time for the church to look different and the church to believe that the God who's working in us and is going to finish his work is going to finish it in somebody else and let's love each other in this process and point them to the Lord now while they're in the boat remember they've just left the Pharisees and the Sadducees while they're in the boat the disciples realize they forgot to bring much bread with them in in Matthew's account it says it looks like they had no bread Mark's account shows us they had one loaf and I love the fact that one loaf is like having no bread You just got to feed me, okay? Just one loaf. That's like having nothing, okay? I love that. But while they're in the boat, they realize they had forgotten to bring much bread with them. Jesus, aware of their worry, tells them to beware of the leaven. He used the word yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, Jesus was referring to the destructive and all-pervasive influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees' teaching, which, mixed with their hypocrisy, was influencing many people to sin and to think that they were okay because The Pharisees taught everyone to focus on external things and not deal with the things of the heart. Remember what we've been talking about tonight? How we've been spending too much time looking at the external stuff and we're judging everybody on what they're doing externally. The Pharisees were teaching everyone to focus on external things and not to deal with things of the heart where God was far more concerned. Again, if you spend your time judging whether or not Christians are acting the way you think they ought to act, you totally don't get it. God's more concerned with our hearts. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Look at verses 12 through 14. We're in Matthew 16 here. Go to Matthew 15 verses 12 through 14. He said, Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let these Pharisees alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Go over to Matthew chapter 23. By the way, you notice Jesus wasn't impressed with, as impressed with the Pharisees as the rest of the Jews were. Matthew 23, look at verses 13 through 15. In Matthew 23, verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte or follower of you, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Why? Because now they think they're okay, because the Pharisees said they were. In chapter 23, look at verses 23 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe on your mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides. You're straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Folks, don't be like that. It's time the church stops looking like the Pharisees and focusing too much on all this other stuff when God's trying to work on your heart. What's he been showing you about you during this isolation? Isn't it interesting that God's taken us and put us all in our own homes for a season? Well, we really, unless we're spending all our time on the Internet with everybody else, with what they're putting on, that a lot of it's phony anyway. If we're all at home and not spending so much time on the Internet, he's now made each of us have to deal with him individually, aren't we? What's he been talking to you about? He says here in verse 25, what are you, scribes and Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Folks, do you realize if you spend more time looking at everybody else, you probably never deal with your own heart? And that could be trouble. In these day and age, days that we're living in, the age we're living in, God's using this time to get to each of us. Yeah, we're to still love each other. We're still look out for each other, have concern for each other. But after we've dealt with our own heart and our own motives first, and our love for each other comes out of an overflow of the joy of what God's done in our lives. Then Jesus, Mark's account, if you remember from Mark's account, shows us, that Jesus reminded them of the number of the full basketfuls left over that he had provided for them already in the past. If you go back and look at Mark 8, 17 through 21, you'll see. He asked them, in the feeding of the 5,000, how many basketfuls are left over? And they said, 12. And he said, in the feeding of the 4,000, how much was left over? How many basketfuls were left over? And they said, seven. And this is what we're going to close with tonight for our study. Folks, put reminders all around you of all that God has done for you already. Some of you are stuck in your houses now. Maybe for a month. I've talked to churches where I was supposed to go speak in May and possibly June, and they're having to say, you know what? We're not sure we're going to have church services in May or June anymore because the governors have said that the the, the stay-at-home order is going to last longer. We don't know. But as you're stuck in your home, put all over your house reminders of the times that God has taken care of you in the past. Things that he's done, pictures of times when maybe it's a picture of a car crash you shouldn't have lived through, but you did. Maybe it's just a a reminder of a grocery bag and how God, when you were out of groceries, miraculously provided for you. Put reminders all around you of all that God has done for you already. It will encourage you in the days to come. That's what Jesus is doing here when he says to him in the boat, remember, remember? The 5,000? I took care of you. Remember the 4,000? I took care of that too. And he's going to use those to remind us. We're going to close tonight with Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Joshua chapter 4, starting in verse 1. says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, A man from each tribe and Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord, your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come. What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Do you realize that once we get through this pandemic, we're going to have some God stories to tell? And you're going to be telling children and grandchildren about how God provided and took care. Folks, he hadn't dropped you yet and he's not going to. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you if you're his child. And he's going to walk you through it. Yeah, you might have been like the disciples and reacted in the wrong way and panicked again. We all have. Jim Johnson, too. But God knows and he loves you. And he says to you, know in your heart that as a father disciplines and trains and teaches his child, your heavenly father disciplines you. Can't wait to show you what happens next in Matthew. We'll do that next Tuesday night. I love you. Thanks for watching.